we must draw the line and walk in both light and truth. Our world right now, it is in such great need of restoration to God, and the only way to bring such a dynamic change is through the gospel of Christ Jesus. Now, our worship today, it is going to be an adventure in biblical orthodoxy. And just as we find in Nehemiah's memoir, he drew the line with the covenant of God, we too must draw a line in biblical orthodoxy. Christ did not leave us ill-equipped when he charged us to preach his good news to the world. We have been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This tool, it can both cast out the darkness and bring restoration beyond anything the world can offer. It is a powerful tool that must be let out of its cage. Now, Christ himself, who was fully God and fully man, is the very word of God incarnate. In our holy scriptures, as we examine them, they are a revelation of the word of God, and we do well to let it speak. In all of our arguments and all of our actions in the world, we must be based in the holy scriptures. Moreover, whenever anyone wants to assail against us, which happens pretty often, or demand that we change our course, which also happens pretty often, we should not allow them to come against us without having to deal with the scriptures. And this is something which is really important. The scriptures are able to do something which is quite phenomenal. They are both merciful and very serious and severe. They are the most charitable thing you could ever imagine, but also one of the strictest things which call us to God, to a place of achievement and excellence, to a place of beauty and nobility where none may live in shame. And that is a wonderful thing and it is a joyous thing, but we have to draw the line and we have to be willing to fight for it. Today, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 9. And again, this is a very revival, restoration-oriented message. But we are going to begin with a very interesting place in our Holy Scriptures. We're going to be going to Nehemiah chapter 9, and this is part of our study of the book of Nehemiah. And we have to realize in that chapter, one cannot truly be a part of the people of God without dealing with the covenant that God made with them. Whenever Nehemiah makes arguments or decisions, they are founded on the holy principles of God. And just as God is holy, Nehemiah and his fellow Jews should be holy. God commands them to fear him and be righteous. Therefore, Nehemiah, when he's in the position to put others in charge, he always picks people who fear God and are righteous. Nehemiah is not interested in the narrative casters of the world, but those who are willing to step up to the plate and be men of God. And in our own day and age, we need men and women to rise up to the occasion, have a firm backbone with the holy principles of God, and walk in the light. Nehemiah, he had been a cupbearer. He had been a servant to the king Artaxerxes of Persia. But Nehemiah, he is fully motivated to serve his true master. And he was willing to step away from that job, even though it would have given him an immense amount of luxury. But even with all that luxury, it was still a job that was filled with shame because it was not what God designed him to be as a man. And Nehemiah, in a world of people who didn't want to step up to the plate, Nehemiah said, I'm going to be a man. It is time to step up to that plate. And he was willing and motivated to serve his true master, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And no one can come against Nehemiah without having to deal with God and his covenant. So we're going to jump now to Nehemiah chapter 9. And we're going to read through this, and it is a, a very fascinating chapter. And when a lot of people in our modern age might open this up and read Nehemiah 9, they might want to throw it away or discard it and say this is too too mean to be a chapter that we, we use. But I promise you, there is a lot of good things in this chapter. And as we walk through this, this is going to be really our, our starting point as we navigate through Scripture today. And so let's jump right into it without any further hesitation. In Nehemiah chapter 9 in his memoir, it opens up saying, Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled and fasting in sackcloth, and they had the earth on their heads. 
When those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, they stood and confessed their sins and the inequities of their ancestors. They stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of their Lord, their God, for a fourth part of the day. And for another fourth, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. Now, something happened early on in that. And in verse 2 of this chapter of Nehemiah's memoir, there's a separation that is had. There's a separation between the foreigners and those who are actually of Israelite descent. And you might wonder why that happens. A lot of people in our modern day and age would look at this and say, ah, this is just more of the tribe versus that tribe. This is Nehemiah's hatred for foreigners. This is Ezra's um, hatred for those who are not of Israelite descent. But that is not what this chapter is about. This chapter and this act that we see happening here is not about one tribe versus another. This chapter, it is about God's covenant and God's law. And we have to realize the ancient world is not a melting pot like our modern day and age was. And in fact, if you were to marry somebody who is of a different society, either you or your spouse, you would have to choose. Do we want to live with your family or my family? If we go with the wife's family and she is not an Israelite, you're going to have to go to a place where they worship someone other than the God of all creation. And this happens quite often. Going outside of Israel is a proxy for unfaithfulness because it is very hard to maintain one's faith when they go to a place where they're completely surrounded by something else. And as we saw with the people of God, since they had been separated from their homeland, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and brings destruction, they do find themselves assimilating to other parts of the world. And by the time you get to Nehemiah, and we saw this in chapter 8, they have no idea what a festival is. They have no idea what a Moses is or why they should care. So what we see happening here is not so much a question of one group versus another, but a question of the covenant. That is what this chapter is about. But let's pick back up in verse 4. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabnai, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, they stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to their Lord, their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah, they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. And then in verse 6, Ezra comes along. And Ezra says, You are the Lord, you alone, you made heaven, the heavens of heavens, and with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. To all of them you give life, and to the host of heaven they worship you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him a covenant to give you his descendants the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gegesite. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. And in verse 9, and you saw the distress of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they had acted insolently against our ancestors. And you made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so that they passed through the sea on dry land. But you threw their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with the pillar of cloud and by night with the pillar of fire, and to give them light on the way in which they should go. You also came down upon us from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them right ordinances and true laws, good statues and commandments. And you made known your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commandments and statutes and a law through your servant Moses. 
For their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and for the thirst you brought water for them out of the rock, and you told them to go in and possess the land which you swore to give them. Now, again, just taking a break from this chapter, which it's one of the longer chapters in the book of Nehemiah, this really is a question of the law. How does one enter into the kingdom of God? It's a very serious question. How does one enter into a restored society? How do you actually find revival? Is it something which you accidentally stumble into? Is it something which you can do by wiping out history and not knowing anything that came before you? Well, as Nehemiah tells us, the answer is there's only one way. Um, and that is through the covenant which God has made with you. Now, for us who live in this modern day and age, we are after Christ. We come after Christ came and revealed himself to us as being fully God, fully man. And he walked this earth, died on a cross, and resurrected after the third day. We get to walk in the new covenant where we have the beautiful gifts of salvation and sanctification with the Holy Spirit given to us. We have to remember, for Nehemiah, he is before that time... But nonetheless, the truths of God, they are true and they are eternal. Nehemiah knows, and so does Ezra, who is working with him in this great ministry. They know that the only way that the kingdom of God can really be the kingdom of God, the only way that people can really enter into it, is if they come through the covenant. It can't be like a thief who comes and tries to stumble over the wall or break into a house at night. It has to come in through the right way. And they know that history is important, who they are is important, and as they look around them, they remember who they are, and that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But unfortunately, there's some bad things in their history too, and they acknowledge that. In verse 16, we find again in this confession, But they and our ancestors acted presumptively and stiffened their necks, and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. They stiffened their necks, and they determined to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they had cast an image of a calf on themselves and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and they had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud that led them in the way did not leave them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night that gave them the light for which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. And for forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession. They are in the land of King Shion of the Hezbon, and the land of King Og of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants like the stars, and you brought them into the land that you had told their ancestors to enter and possess. And so the descendants, they went in, and they possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, and the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands, and the kings and the peoples of the land, and to do with them as they pleased. And they captured fortresses, cities, and even rich lands, and took possessions of houses filled with all sorts of goods, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, and they were filled and became fat, and they delighted themselves in your great goodness. But nevertheless, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order that they might turn back to you. But they instead committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hands of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hands of their enemies. 
But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. And you abandoned them to the hands of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you had heard them from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law, but yet they would act presumptively and did not obey your commandments. Instead, sinned against your ordinances, and they, by the observance of which person shall live. They turned. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks and would not obey. In many years you were patient with them. You warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you handed them over to the peoples of the lands. But nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end for them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now once we've read through this chapter, Nehemiah and Ezra, as they're, they're reminding people of this history, there is a, a vicious cycle that has happened with the Jewish people. They have had times of great prosperity. God has graced them with great things beyond imagination. But they have had slopes where they have slipperily gone down into the depths. They have been disobedient. You know, outside of the orthodoxy of God's covenant, there is no restraint on humanity. And when you take sinful hearts and you couple them with evil ideas and you couple them with a lack of restraint, it is a slippery slope down to the pits of depravity. And this happened time and time again with the people. As soon as they stepped outside of the line, they found themselves sliding down. We look throughout our, our modern day and age, and a lot of times people say, oh, you know, if you call something a slippery slope, that's not an argument. And you know what? It's true. To say something is a slippery slope is not an argument. It's an observation. It's a logical pathology that says once things are set in order, outside of God's orthodoxy and God's covenant, there's nothing to pull them back. And we see this cycle happen time and time again. And let's go ahead and finish up this chapter, and then we'll start looking at some other scriptures and take an adventure through biblical orthodoxy and find out just what great power God has given us and how the victory truly is ours. But we have to step up to the plate and be righteous men and women who are willing to do something beautiful in the world around us. Now, therefore, and this is verse 32, the great and mighty and awesome God, Keeping covenant and steadfast love, do not treat lightly all the hardships that have come upon us, upon our kings, our officials, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and all your people since the time of that king of Assyria until today. For you have been just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our officials, our priests, our ancestors have not kept your law or heeded the commandments and the warnings you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and even in the great goodness that you bestowed on them, and even in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you and did not turn from their wicked works. But here we are, slaves to this day, slaves in the land that you gave to our ancestors to enjoy its fruit and good gifts, to yield, to come and find rich yields that go to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins." And they also have power over our bodies and over our livestock at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. But because of all of this, we make a firm agreement in writing. And on that, a sealed document are inscribed the names of our officials, our Levites, and our priests. So what we see happening here in Nehemiah chapter 9 is that Nehemiah draws the line. He draws the line. He puts it in writing. You cannot truly be a part of the people of God. You cannot contend or do anything that interacts with the people of God or God's kingdom without dealing with the covenant that God made with his people. In our modern age, you might read Nehemiah 9, and a lot of people, they would focus on that early on line in there about the separation of the foreigners. And 
This is just how the eyes and ears of our modern day and age have trained people to read this. And they would discount the whole chapter probably because of that. And it's so sad because this is not a book about foreigners versus Israelites. And that's not what is going on here in this chapter. But instead, what we find is that there's something fundamentally different going on. This is a chapter and this is a a section here on the law. And the law quite clearly instructs the people of God to have mercy on foreigners, to bless all of the earth. This is why God called Abram and Sarah that they would be set apart to bless all the earth. Nehemiah 9 is a declaration that one cannot accidentally fall into the kingdom of God, that one must enter through the covenant of God if they are to be a part of this society. And the people of God had experienced generations of despair because they themselves, as a people, forgot the covenant of God. And this truly, truly was a a sad thing. For generations, they were in despair because they forgot the covenant of God. And they had begun assimilating into the various cultures around them. And in order for revival to be sustained, the holy principles of God, they must be declared as true. And a line must be drawn that says, none can enter by going around them. Now, keep in mind, one of the reasons why this is so important to put in writing and to assert is that the ancient world is not just a melting pot like our modern society. It was easy for the people to forget their heritage when they stepped away from their history. There's a reason why when you look to Jewish cemeteries, they record a lot of their history there. You know, the ancient world was not the melting pot that our modern society is. And even when you look at America and compare that to many other places in the world, even in this modern day and age, we are unique as a melting pot. You see, in the ancient world, if you married someone outside of your society, a foreigner, either you or your spouse, you're going to have to choose where you want to live. And depending on where your family chose to live, either the husband or the wife, they're going to have to give up their religion and assimilate. And we can clearly see that this had some serious ramifications. As the Jewish people had been dispersed by King Nebuchadnezzar, many of them married into other other clans of people, other nations and other tribes, and they forgot their history. When Nehemiah resurrects the old documents, we see that many people, they don't know who they are. They don't even know they have a connection to, to the Holy Land of Israel. Well, we can also see that clearly God does want the whole earth to be blessed. And we can go all the way back to Exodus and see that there were Egyptians that left with the Israelites. So this is not just about foreigners versus Israelites. We can see that there were foreigners that were permitted to enter into Israelite society provided they chose to assimilate into God's covenant. Ruth, who was one of the foremothers of Jesus, is an example of this. But what we find in this chapter truly is Nehemiah drawing the line. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, then you have to enter through the covenant. And that is a big part of this revival. In fact, it is central to this revival. Um, it's, it's one of those immovable facets of this revival. Yes, there's the great work. Yes, there's the aspirations. Yes, there are the prayers and the fastings. But also drawing the line on the covenant is a inseparable part of being the people of God. So I have to ask us, in our modern day and age, do we have this level of conviction? Have we made good on the holy armor of God and used it to fortify our lives? As we engage with the world around us, can people come against us without having to contend with the holy armor of God? We must know whom we are motivated to serve. The armor of God is given to us for a reason, for it is a great and powerful tool. It is a lion that must be let out of the cage, for it does not only offer protection, but it can also slay the darkness. For so long, we have been told to make arguments without using scripture. But this is one of our most precious gifts from God. And we have to realize, this is a deceptive tactic which has been used to really disable us. 
This is a deceptive tactic that has caused us to try to navigate the world without using the tools of light which we follow. And it is a demand that we make bricks without straw. If you want to go back and have a little bit of an Exodus reference. The texts that are revealed to us, they bring us all things necessary to salvation, all things necessary to overcome the darkness, and all things necessary to bring healing. Now the world wants us to cage the lion, to sheathe the sword, but we must let it out. We must let the Holy Scriptures be the righteous line that all must address if they want to battle with us. And we're going to have a sequence through Scripture that we're going to look at. And when I do this in person with my my with my my congregation there in the sanctuary, as we're there, there's going to be a lot of different people that read through these scriptures. So it's going to be a much more interactive service when we have this in person. But I want us to open up by going to the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 14, verse 6. And we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. And I have a, a printout of this or an online document that you can print out that is accessible here at the kingdomofthelogos.com or kingdomofthelogos.org or you can look at Jolton Church of the Nazarene or King of the Kingdom of the Logos on Facebook. There's a lot of places you can find this. It's easy to find if you search for Jolton Church of the Nazarene or Kingdom of the Logos. I encourage you to to grab some of these scriptures. And this is but a mere taste. We, we should have so many scriptures under our belt that we carry with us every day. Um, let us open up. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, our faith, it is one that is built on objective truth, truth that is unchanging. Our Lord Christ Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, died for us on the third day and resurrected. Without this objective truth, our faith means nothing. However, with this objective truth, our faith means everything. The scriptures we will examine in this sequence are but a small sampling of the scriptures that we should have and carry with us every day. As we hold the line against the darkness, we must be firmly rooted in the truth that God has revealed to us. For it is a powerful lion, and we do well to release it from the restraints that are placed on it by the world. And let, let us begin by going now to, to the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to pray together. I know we... We didn't go through our normal prayers at the beginning, but because this is going to be a little bit different service format today, I want us to go now to the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to go to Ephesians and through several different scriptures. So let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So, as we, as we come here, let us go now to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at the armor of God. And this is Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against authorities, and against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes are for your feet, Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of this, take the shield of faith, 
with which you will be able to quench all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit at all times and in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. This scripture really does speak for itself. There's not a lot that needs to be said or added to it. And as we we contemplate the armor of God, we realize that this evil day that we hear referenced there, I don't think that's referencing one day and sort of like the final judgment. There certainly will be a final day where there will be the judgment of the living and the dead. But I think this wisdom is given to us that you're going to have a lot of evil days in your life. There's going to be a lot of times where the darkness tries to come and consume you. We see those going on in our world right now. Here in America, we see so many things that hate beauty, they hate truth, they hate nobility, and they want to bring everything down to a level of chaos. And so many times people think, well, if we're going to be the church, if we're going to be relevant, you know, we need to talk about the topics the world wants us to talk about. We need to talk about the issues that dishonest people are talking about, and we need to thread that camel through the eye of the needle. I don't think this is the case at all. We need to be talking about biblical orthodoxy because these truths, they're given to us for a reason. Believe it or not, just because something is written in the past doesn't mean that suddenly the morality of humanity has changed. All of these scriptures, they are relevant to us today. And let us grab hold of them, stand fast so that we can stand firm. Let's quit talking about things and using the language that the world wants us to use and let's return to biblical orthodoxy. And if you're with me right now, I trust you're probably thinking this is the route we should go as well. Going over to the book of James, James 1.25 says, But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, not being hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. You know, just as our Lord came to us, granting freedom to the captives and sight to the blind, reminiscing there what the prophet Isaiah said, we must be doers who act and not forget our mission. There is liberty in the law of God. And there are those who look at themselves in the mirror and then they turn away and forget what they look like. And James tells us there will be people who do that, people who forget their calling, people who forget the truth that they are to be walking in. But this is not what Christ commissioned us for. Christ has commissioned us with great authority and responsibility. So don't let us look into the liberating law of God with joy and go out into the world doing the good work of the gospel. Now, in the third epistle of John, chapter 1, verse 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. You know, John writes this while there's some division going on in one of the churches. But he realizes we have to make decisions as people. We have to make decisions. We have to decide who we're going to imitate, and we have to make decisions on situations going around in the world. We have to, to make some, some calls when we see things going on and try to figure out who is being a deceiver and who is not. And just as our Lord came to us and he granted us freedom, he also granted us eyes to see. And he gave us wisdom in making these discernments. Our Lord taught us that we can discern the righteous from the wicked by examining their fruits. There are certainly wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're pretty good at disguising themselves as sheep. But we know them by their fruits rather than the words of their tongue. In all things, let us be motivated by service to God and His truth. In the first epistle of John, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, We are told this, 
This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So in all things, let us reflect the light of Christ, who is the very light of the world. And on that note, on light and darkness, you know, deception is very powerful. And we're in a new, real era where wholehearted evil is out in public. And I have been defining wholehearted evil, and there's a spiritual um, warfare going on in a biblical basis for my definition. Wholehearted evil is evil that ignores truth. It deceives those who don't have eyes of God that it is the light, and it ignores truth. It doesn't try to defy truth. It doesn't try to debate it or even give it false reasoning. It just ignores truth. Now, the scriptural basis for this we can find in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew 6, 22 through 23, when Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is actually darkness, how great then is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Now while this chapter and this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is certainly talking about light and darkness, we have to realize that this is beyond just choosing between God and wealth. This is a, a principle of God that is, is transcendental. There are times where people have something inside them that they think is the light. Just because someone is convinced that their intentions are good does not mean that they are walking in truth and light. If one does not have eyes transformed by God, they're not using the language that God wants us to use, they're not seeing the world on the terms God wants us to, well, they can be deceived. And how great a deception one experiences if the light within them is actually darkness. You know, we're told by the New Testament, you know, there is no Jew, no Gentile, no free or slave, because the only identity that matters is that identity found in Christ Jesus. So many in our modern day and age, so many in the church have been deceived into thinking that you don't actually need to do that. That you should play these little games. And yes, there are games that should be mocked. That somehow, because there, there are real issues in the world, that somehow the way we defeat them is by being so arrogant in our, our understanding of the world that we think we know better than the New Testament. The antidote to issues between different races and groups is to treat people as individuals and respect their individual circumstances. The arguments that say, well, if you're doing that, then you're ignoring the issues of race is not true. That is illogical because if somebody has a race-related issue in their personal circumstances, you'll deal with that when you deal with their personal circumstances. The only reason that people are telling you you can't be colorblind is because they're wanting to apply something to an individual that's not actually in that individual's personal circumstances. The New Testament is pretty clear. You look at people on their personal circumstances. Jesus did that. Um, going now to the gospel according to, to St. John, chapter 20, verses 23 to 23. Um, it's also on this topic of where we're at in our modern day and age. You know, he said, When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, this scripture is fascinating because it has both a commandment built into it and a logical truth. That is just a fact of how creation works. If sins are forgiven, well, then they are forgiven and healing can take place. Now, it takes the power of God to do that, but that is God's offering. That is a gift from God on how we can have healing. If you retain sins, they are retained. And that means all the consequences of chaos and suffering, they're going to endure. This is true in our individual lives and collectively. 
And going back to what I said there about the light and the darkness, a lot of people think that they have the light inside them, that they're going to thread the camel through the eye of the needle, and they're going to solve issues between groups by, by doing the very things which are destructive. So many times there are mentalities in our modern world that want to retain the old sins. We see this all the time. They want to hold on to old sins. And it's not that, that you just can't have forgiveness at the same time you're retaining sins. You can't. You just can't. The scriptures teach us this. Going now to a, a little bit different section of the New Testament. I want us to go now to Philippians 4 eight, And this gives us something to hold on to. You know, we see so much chaos in our world. We need things to hold on to. Philippians 4.8 tells us, Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, there are several translations of these scriptures, and sometimes you get written in there what is honorable. Other times you might get what is noble. Sometimes you get whatever is pleasing. Some will say whatever is beautiful, whatever is lovely, whatever is virtuous, whatever is worthy of praise. Whenever we read these scriptures, we oftentimes do have a little bit of translating issues. But you know what? Just about all the translation that you find in this will take you in the, the right direction because what Philippians 4.8 is talking about is a, a section of beauty. You know, the idolatrous God of this age that's possessing everything in our culture, it's infecting all of our institutions and unfortunately trying to bring unbelief even within Christian institutions, you know, it hates beauty. It hates everything that's true. It hates objective truth. It hates real justice and it wants to have, you know, modified justice in some way. And that's so sad. It doesn't want people to look beautiful. It doesn't want people to aspire to be the, the best they can be. And they can, they can return back to being the, the men and women that God designed us to be. You know, the idolatrous God of this age, it wants us all to be ugly, both on the inside and the outside. Just as God is holy, and therefore we should be holy, we should also aspire for everything listed here in Philippians 4.8, for they belong to God. And as we draw towards the ends of this, I want us to look now in Galatians, particularly Galatians 5. Galatians 5, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, and not only to use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love you become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Christ, he commanded us, and even if you go somewhere like the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, and says, I give you a new commandment to love one another just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, for if you have love for one another. You know, Christ-like love, it very clearly tells us to love our enemies and to serve the world around us. However, let us not be confused on this because the deceiver will come to try to manipulate us on this front as well. Wholehearted evil will try to take advantage of this. And what it will try to get you to think is that loving your neighbor is whatever anyone defines love to be. Mm -mm, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, love as I loved you. And keep in mind, service to the world and loving the world doesn't mean that the devil gets to sit on the throne of heaven. You know, often we describe the kingdom of God as an upside down kingdom, but that does not mean that the devil sits on the throne of heaven. And that's pretty clear from the New Testament. It also means that we don't help our neighbors advance their sin. You know, loving your neighbor means casting out the darkness, not helping them advance the darkness in their life. You know, we love others as Christ loved us, and that pulls people towards holiness and freedom of God. And 
I want us to, to wrap up our, our adventure through Scripture by going now to Galatians 5.22, which teaches us the fruit of the Spirit, and that contrasts the fruits of the world. And on this fruit of the Spirit, and it, this is Galatians 22 and 23, it says, By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For there is no law against such things. You know, God's creation and law of liberty does not work against these things. And the only things that keep us from such a disciplined fruit are of the darkness. We must show the world a contrast by having the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We must draw the line. Just as Nehemiah drew a line and said none can enter the kingdom outside of the covenant instituted by God, we must draw a line and hold fast to it. We must defend the line of righteousness if we are to bring revival in our nation. If we desire revival and restoration, we have to draw the line and hold it. For there can be no liberty without the law, and we cannot be hearers who forget, but doers who joyfully hold the line against evil. Now we've been given a powerful sword. It is capable of both casting out the darkness and bringing redemption beyond any power of the world. It is the most merciful thing we could ever experience and also the most serious and severe thing we could have ever imagined. No one enters the kingdom without coming through Christ. And let us make good on the great tools given to us. If we truly want revival and restoration, then we must draw the line and fight for it. In Joshua going a little bit to the Old Testament now, in Joshua 24, 15, you know, we, we quote this scripture all the time. People, they, they brand a lot of their stuff with this. When Joshua comes to, to the assembly of Israel, he comes and he asks them to choose who they will serve. And I'm going to do that to you as well this day. Joshua 24, 15 says, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in this land which you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, Joshua realized that wholehearted evil was coming into the people of God. Evil that had possessed sinners. And when they looked at the light of God, they said, that is evil. This great confusion between what is good and what is evil, that was in Joshua's time. You know, often I, I read and preach from the NRSV and a few other translations, but I actually think the King James does well in this chapter when it says, if it is evil to you to serve the Lord, because there are a lot of people who are going to think it's e evil to serve the Lord. They have totally confused good and evil. God didn't desire us to be that way. And if we want restoration and revival, we've got to be honest about where the world's at, and we've got to draw the line. If we want people to come into the kingdom of God, we have to draw the line. So, just as Joshua asked this question to the full assembly of Israel, I'm going to ask it right now. Ask the pastor, as someone who's been given charge as a steward, you know, I'm not special. This isn't my truth. None of these are my truths. These are things which belong to God, and they are revealed to all of us. God comes to us, and we are called to make a choice. And as a pastor, I want to ask you today, whom do you choose to serve? I'm asking you this question in the joy of the light. But we can see from the growing chaos in our society that we are drawing closer to a time. We are drawing closer to a time when the darkness, the beast itself, is also going to ask you this question. There are going to be many who consider it evil to worship the Lord. And I ask you this question from the peace of the gospel. But keep in mind, not everyone who asks this question is Joshua, not someone who's a pastor. 
Nebuchadnezzar asked this in the book of Daniel 3.15. You know, when you hear the sound of the music, bow down, and all is well and good. But if you do not bow down and worship the golden statue that I have made, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. In Revelation 13, again, you find the beast, which has had life breathed into it from, well, the statue of the beast, which has been breathed into existence from the, the second beast there. It too demands people bow down or throw them into the blazing fire. We see throughout time, we see judges who come to people. We see this even in America today. People say, you will surrender your faith. Choose this day whom you will serve. And as the scripture tells us, it's better that you choose that sooner than later. Um, It's best you choose it now. And it's much better that you choose it when the light is asking you this. So remember, as 1 John 5.4 tells us, and we're going to wrap up with this, whatever is of God conquers the world. So thank you for joining me today. Again, I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor here at Kingdom of the Logos, and God love you, and have a blessed day.